We're starting now on 205. Does anybody have any points of discussion before we start? Okay. Let's begin then. Let's, we get into an interesting... We get into a little section of Master Telling the Truth when it wasn't popular to do so. Uh, food is many people's religion. They are fanatics on the subject. I was once invited, the Master told me, to a place where they served unfired foods as they called it. Everything in their diet was in a raw state. With great pride, they served me an utterly tasteless meal. The food was dreadful and not at all scientific. (laughs) Afterward, they asked me to give a speech. I declined. When they pleaded with me, I replied, you won't like what I have to say. Still, they kept insisting. You know I can't be untruthful no matter what the cost. I prefer to be polite But if I must speak, I have to say what I really think. They were begging for a specific opinion, and I couldn't equivocate. After they'd persisted for some time, I finally answered them frankly. Well, I told them, in the first place, I've never in my life eaten worse food. (laughs) Not only was it tasteless, but your diet is unbalanced and completely unscientific. As you can imagine, they were in an uproar. You don't know what you're talking about, they shouted. You will see, I am right, I replied firmly. If you don't listen to me 15 days from now, someone in this place will die because of this diet. That, in fact, was what actually happened. 15 days later, one of them died, and the place had to be closed down. Oh, my gosh, isn't that awful? He didn't curse them, he just predicted it. You know, they always say, child-raising religion and food, there was... uh, in the early years of the spiritual path, in the 70s when everybody was just getting started, a lot of people started, you know, a lot of times you start with food because food actually really affects your consciousness. And when you just start wanting to kind of get some influence over your life, one of the things that people often start with is diet. I certainly did. Before I got anywhere, you know, really serious on the path, I got, or I should say as I started out on the path, I started getting serious about diet because it affected consciousness and I wanted it to be different. Um, let, uh, what was I going to say with that? Oh yes, I remember the very early, <laughs> very early, unfortunately I don't have this little booklet anymore, but in the 70s, this little booklet came to Ananda and it had been written by somebody in the TM movement who had gone to one of their conventions and was so aggravated by the fact that every single person in the convention was on some diet and was advocating the diet as the best possible thing that would ever come. So this little booklet um, recommended the Kabunza diet. And the Kabunza diet, and he had the, the same basic story that there was this isolated tribe somewhere in the hills of Peru and that they'd never been touched by civilization and they uh, lived regularly to 120 and they could play volleyball well past 100 and they were you know, just powerful people who, and, and so on like this, with their hair, hair was its natural color, and so on like that. And so they had a, a mono diet of just this sort of substance that just seemed to be all that they ate. So he managed to win their trust enough to bring back some, this was all a spoof, of course, to bring back some of it. And he had it carefully, scientifically analyzed, and it turned out to be chemically identical to Hershey with almonds. <laughs> So the entire Kabunza diet was Hershey with almonds. <laughs> and then there were all these recipes, and it was so much like what was really going on. There were all these recipes. And there was called a Triple Kabunza. 
And that was like a Hershey with almonds on the bottom, one in the middle and one on the top. <laughs> and then there was Kabunza Surprise, which is one on the bottom, one in the middle and one on the top. And when you open the top one, surprise, there was one in the middle. And then he even had all this about um, that you might go through a certain healing crisis, like your face might break out in all these all this acne and your teeth might rot and fall out, but that you should just stick with the diet because these are natural things that happen in the cleansing process. <laughs> it was really a masterpiece. It was perfect. He had every note. But there is that other side of it, which is it does matter. But I heard a very interesting conversation between, between Sant Kashavadas and Swami Kriyananda. Sant Kashavadas was a, um, a spiritual teacher very popular in America from India. He died a number of years ago. He came to visit Swamiji and over, over the lunch table <laughs> they were talking about how fanatical so many people, young people were about diet. And it was, they, they made just a very interesting comment. They said, at this stage in the yugas, which is Kali ending, Dwapara just getting off the ground, the material world is still too dense for you to be able to make significant progress purely by physical purification. They said in a higher age, where the, uh, the layer of matter is thinner, if you just purify the body a little bit, it'll make a huge difference in how you can uh, free your consciousness. It was a very interesting statement. It put the whole thing in a very different light. They didn't recommend um, complete disregard, but they basically said you, you can't make that much of an alliance between diet and spiritual progress during this age. Um, what was the last thought on that? Um, oh, and so then they both said devotion. In this age, devotion. That's the, that's the method that really works. So it was, it was a nice way to think about it because um, these, these fads do sweep through where people really think that this is the absolute answer. Master, Master was very um, definite about the relative importance of diet. He talks a lot about health and healing, and he certainly, you know, emphasizes com certain common sense things, but he also was so strong against fanaticism. He had that phrase, proper etarianism, and he just, you know, some simple diet. And even in the first round of his teaching, he didn't even recommend vegetarianism because it was just too much for people. They just didn't know, even know where to go with that. So he would try to, first he tried to, you know, modify the red meat, and then only later was he able to really recommend vegetarianism and have people respond. And even then with Dr. Lewis, when Dr. Lewis was having all that pain, he, he had told him that his body needed meat. Just a little fish, a little chicken, he should have just a little bit. But you know, there it was. For, for me, who have, I, I, have, I have become quite consciousness, conscious of the concept of dead animals, which is just like, is not the nicest way to think about it, but for some reason that's how it's, I think about it. So every time it's chicken or fish or something like that, in my, the back of my head you have this dead animal. But Master apparently didn't think it mattered that much, which is very, it's very significant for us to appreciate that because it's really helpful to try to take our boundaries from the boundaries that he set. And Master was a very good cook, and he, and he cooked for the devotees, and he cooked um, 
Indian food, a lot of it. And he cooked food that was often fried a great deal. And just things that people wouldn't do. And, and when people were becoming so upset about sugar, Swami just remarked one day, he said, well, the saints in India often give you sweet prasad. He said, and they wouldn't necessarily do that. I mean, if it was really as much of a poison as people are trying to say it is, but of course, everything in moderation. When you get a little prasad from Ananda Mohima, that's quite different than uh, the kabunza diet. <laughs> so, and also, so many things have changed in our world, it's a little hard to tell because so many realities are unnatural. Um, I certainly know when I arrived at Ananda, I was completely fanatical about food. Just absolutely fanatical. And I fell right into that category of just, well, I wasn't unscientific. I actually had a very good diet. But I just was very confused as to mm, how important it was spiritually. It had been a good discipline for me. Well, that's not even honest because it wasn't much of a discipline for me. It was just something I knew how to do. I mean, knew how to do meaning from past lives. It's just like, okay, we're going to not, we're going to eat a restricted diet and we just do it. A friend of mine who um, has been absolutely solid in his sadhana, he just never misses morning or night for most of his life. And he, he remarked to me one day, he said, I know this looks very impressive. <laughs> he said, but it's just something I was born knowing how to do. And what he was actually saying is, it isn't that much of an accomplishment for me, which is an odd thing. It's just a habit that I already had in place and I can follow it. And certainly it's a good habit, but it, doesn't re- it didn't represent for him some great spiritual success. It was just the way he was made. So when I think even about you know, my narrowness at different times, it, it doesn't really represent anything. Just the way I was made, I had to learn to relax. And Swamiji was always very relaxed about it because he, would, he based his pattern on matter, Master. And Swami always tells us that story too, that, um, that he was skipping dinner in order to meditate more. And when Master found out he was doing it, Master said, no, you should always eat three times a day. And whether that was specific for Swamiji, I don't know, but Swami always ate three times a day. Just, you know, he, he we just, we never skip dinner, we never skip lunch, we never skip breakfast. No matter how, whatever was going on, it didn't have to be, you know, a huge, elaborate, but he always sat down very consciously and conscientiously ate three times a day because Master had told him to. And so that's what he did. You know, it just all comes down to whatever the Master said. And so here, he's talking about the raw foods. Now, I, I admit nowadays people can make raw foods a lot better. Um, but Swamiji has never, even though people get very, very keen on it, Swamiji has always cautioned against too much fanaticism. He's just never seen it help your health or your spirit. So it's, just, it's something to keep in the back of your mind. And here, the other thing you have with Master is just um, the strange karma of these people. We have several stories here this evening where people really wanted him to speak. And he, he says, you know me, I can't be untruthful truthful, no matter what the cost. And he kept trying to tell them, you don't want to hear what I have to say, don't make me talk. But when he did, he just figured it was their destiny to hear it, and he, and he did. Can you imagine? You know, they were so committed to it, and I, they were really, I'm sure, looking forward to getting Paramhansa Yogananda's endorsement so they could put it on their brochure or whatever they were doing. 
you can imagine this in the 19 what 20s 30s this strange little group I mean at least nowadays it's just common you can be vegan or paleo or raw or whatever the things that you are it's just uh, it's quite entertaining and it has nothing I was in New York City and uh, after my class we needed a place to go and so we found some some uh, cafe cafeteria kind of thing like that and you know it was all this healthy food and um, the paleo diet which is I believe you're only supposed to eat what you can chase down yourself without mechanical help as far as I understand it but I might be wrong I know I'm being rude about that one that's the one that I've been through too many myself personally but they had the paleo and they had the vegan and they had all this kale and you know just everything everything wholesome just like that the music and the atmosphere in the place it was it really it looked and felt like being in hell it was the strangest place it was very dark and I don't know what it was, but it just kind of seemed to ripple all the time like this. And, and you know, we were supposed to be going in there to have all this really healthy food, and it, it was a weird moment. I mean, I, it was perfectly fine. I, when I have been in New York City, which is twice, there's only one way to be there, which is with great enthusiasm. <laughs> I mean, if you don't enjoy it, don't go. It's very simple. There's no place in between. So I enjoyed it completely. But the... the the illusion that diet and spirit were at all the same. It's just, it's just not. It's, it's people are into their bodies. And so they're better, better that than being unhealthy. But better not to be too fanatical about it. Then this, you know, the person died and the whole place has to be closed down. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Okay, number 206. I was invited by a famous choir to hear them perform. I think, actually, Swami said it was the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. I was invited by a famous choir to hear them perform. I'm assuming that's the truth. He didn't put the name in. Afterward, they asked me to say something. I told them truthfully, as far as technique was concerned, your singing was flawless. But to whom was the music addressed? It's a simple question. Wasn't it supposed to be to God? Were you trying to please Him? Or were you trying to impress me? Next time, keep your hearts focused on Him for whom the music was written. That really sort of tells you about a lot of different things. The Western music is so outwardly directed and it's about and it's not so much to. But the difference between religious music and spiritual music is really in the consciousness of those who are doing it. It's really in the consciousness of those who are doing it. I remember before Swami had so much of his own music, before it existed, um, for the Christmas meditations when he would play music, he used to, um, he had, it was called Swamiji's Favorites. I think the tape is still around somewhere. And he just selected out of a number of different classical and other kinds of music, just songs that he he really thought were particularly beautiful. One of them was the duet from which he took, he later wrote the song, um, Yes, It's She, Divine Mother. He used to play that section of that opera, and he had a, a, a beautiful Indian piece in there. And one of the songs was a, a French folk song, Songs of the Auvergne, it was called. And it was exquisitely beautiful 
And it was in French. He said the words were just, you know, I've been waiting for my lover to return and soon he's coming and I hope, when he, I hope he gets here quickly, <laughs> sort of like that. But the feeling of it was just breathtaking because the woman was really singing. It's very interesting, that same woman who made that recording, and then somehow that recording became popular, so she re-recorded it. But Swami said the second time she was so conscious of how successful and beautiful her voice was, he said it was never as beautiful as it had been the first time. Isn't that interesting? Consciousness is everything. Oh my goodness. So once again, Master tells the truth. (laughs) From Bernard, Swami says, I heard this story, number 207. The Master, he said, was once invited to a dinner at a wealthy home in New York City. Speaking of New York. Everyone there belonged to the upper crust social set. It's also fascinating. That's that's who Master... uh, Master became trendy among people. You know, he, it be, he became well-known. He was met by the President of the United States. He had state government officials. And he had wealthy people interested. He, you know, he went to these big cities and filled these halls. So he, be, he became the toast of the town. Everyone there belonged to the upper crust social set. They asked him afterward to give a speech. He politely declined. They insisted, however. At last, he said, you won't like what I have to say. I imagine they couldn't believe he would say very much, at most a few platitudes. Their own lives, after all, were superficial. They couldn't imagine the master's perception being very deep. That's a very interesting statement, isn't it? Yeah, they just, it's not even, it's like they were incapable of thinking about someone being serious. I read something so touching in the book called The Pastor's Wife, which was written by Sabina, uh, Sabina Wormbrand. Richard Wormbrand was the Christian, uh, Christian uh, clergyman in Romania who was imprisoned by the communists. This was some decades ago. And his wife, Sabina, was also imprisoned for being Christians. And uh, she said... Of course, everyone in, in prison was miserable. <laughs> but the most miserable people were various women socialites who, for one reason or another, because the dictator didn't need a reason, also found themselves in prison. And they were often arrested in their um, evening dress. Who knows why? Maybe their husbands became politically on the out. But they were there they were in prison. And she said, um, at least she had a very deep inner life. And she had a profound relationship with Jesus, which did not depend on where she lived. But she said these women had, had nothing except what they could do externally. And so when all of that was taken away, their clothes, their gossip, their social events, their, their entertainments, she said they, they just had nothing at all. And she said their misery just was far outstripped what anybody else was experiencing. They just, they just didn't, absolutely did not know what to do with themselves. So here you have, you know, for them, it's at the social gathering, it's just this oddity to have this Hindu Swami there. And so they naturally want him to speak, but they, what would he talk about? How would they even begin to imagine? This world is a dream? Really. So, 
I imagine they couldn't believe he would say very much. At most a few platitudes, their own lives, after all, were superficial. They couldn't imagine the master's perception being very deep. After they'd kept on insisting, the master finally rose to address them. He spoke at length about the shallowness of their lives and the emptiness of their ambitions. Many of those in the room were reduced to tears. I guess elsewhere Swami wrote about, they talked about how much they drank and how they chased each other's wives. And I mean, he really just said it like it really was. His hosts weren't happy, of course. But he himself had not had any other choice but to speak as he felt. His commitment was to the truth. Many people were changed that evening, I suspect, by thoughts he'd awakened in them. You have to come back to Master's statement that not one person crossed his life, crossed his path in that life, except that it was intended by God that they do so. And then you have that Indian uh, statement, one moment in the company of a saint will be your raft over the ocean of delusion. So imagine, you're, whatever you are, you're wealthy, you're well, sent, well fixed in New York, you've been invited to this dinner, and all of a sudden this avatar that you just don't even know who he is, who's coming to dinner tonight? Oh, I think she's invited some unusual guest, you know, that famous man who's been speaking. And all of a sudden he just penetrates. And you don't know who was in the room. Maybe he was really talking to just one or two people, you know, who, who he knew were ready. But what I remember uh, made such an impression on me in the, the, um, the readings of Edgar Cayce, who used to do those, who was a, a, a psych, a trance, uh, anyway, he would, he, was a, he would channel these messages. He himself was a very saintly soul, so it wasn't like he just, was, he wasn't a medium. It was his own consciousness in some extremely unique manner. Um, but he often talked to people about their past lives. And he, he told many people, uh, his, re- his readings were all recorded, and then after his passing, he died in the 50s or maybe, or somewhere in, what? 45. And so people codified. So, so there's a huge library of all his readings, and it's all cross-referenced. So they were able to see sort of what the patterns were. And one of the patterns was, he told many people, that they lived at the time of Christ, but he didn't tell them like you were, you know, Matthew or John or someone like that, but you lived at the time of Christ and you saw him. You were on the street and he walked by, you know, you caught his eye at one place, you heard him preach in the temple. That was the kind of contact. You, you, you're, you're, you crossed his path. And then what Edgar Casey said is, and you have been working on that ever since, that it has been the operative force in your life ever since that happened. It's just incredible because it just, it cracks. I, we, I don't think we, I mean, I'll speak for myself, we just don't have any idea what the power of those masters really is. When, when we would go on pilgrimage to India, when, when we took those pilgrimage trips repeatedly, there was always this other part of the trip, which was that it ended. <laughs> People would be so filled with anticipation before we'd go, and pretty consistently we had just marvelous experiences. Not always happy, sometimes challenging, but nonetheless very dynamic. 
But then, and you just kind of get into this whole other way of life. And our trip was like 28 days, so it was a lot of time. And then you'd have to go home. And, and you'd always have this feeling that I will never be the same again. But then you go home and all that you left behind, just like they say about your karma, you can wash off all your karma by bathing in the Ganges, but the karma waits in the trees. <laughs> and as soon as you get out of the river, it just jumps back on you. <laughs> so it's sort of like that. All of your karma comes back in. So I, I would try to talk to people before we leave about the transition, because otherwise, sometimes it would be very sad for people. And it, it would actually uh, throw them off really in a big way. That just I would try to get people ready to go home and I expressed what, what my experience was, which was having that, that kind of a deep spiritual experience. And I'm certainly being on the street and having Jesus go by, sitting in that New York dining room and have him excoriate you for the superficiality of your life is infinitely more. But I said it's like having a small uh, piece of radioactive substance planted really deep into your heart. And I don't understand the science of it, but what I understand is it begins to release energy. And as that energy is released, then, the, then everything is, is affected by it and gradually completely transformed. And it's, it's not like it happens instantly, but once that's planted, um, it will just go on and on and on until everything has been shifted because of that pulse like that. And I always think when I uh, reflect on these stories of Master's um, weird moments in which he hands out things like that, or Casey's comment, that that's just what happened. He just went in. Swamiji was talking in uh, something I heard recorded about... He was talking about people being young or being old in their physical bodies and... Swami just, he said it in this very casual way. Uh, he was talking about the necessity to be open to everyone. I know what he was talking about. He was talking about it doesn't matter what your position in the organization is. This was in the um, SRF, really strong SRF conflict days when the board of directors of SRF was trying to assert that because they were the board of directors of SRF, therefore they knew better. And Swami was trying to get all of us to appreciate that there is no connection whatsoever between your position in the world, your outward activity, and what your actual consciousness is, or your age, or your apparent experience. He said, you know, somebody, as he put it, somebody um, could be you know, thousands of years deep into the spiritual path, but they just happen to arrive a little later, you know, at this point than others did. It's just such a simple way to say it, because... We're all just moving like this all the time. People die and they're born and they die and they're born, but it has nothing to do with our consciousness. And you die, you have all this different um, karmas to work out. And it all is, um, let me think where I was going with that. Oh, but it's, it's just this, you know, this constant effort to find where we need to be. And then Master comes to the dinner, comes to dinner and says these things to you. He came to dinner at Sister Gaudamata's house too, and it, she put the put the salt shaker down. And that was that. That was it for her. <laughs> She's just been waiting for him forever. 
This is amazing stories. Comments or questions? Any of it? Do you know there was an incident? I'm going to stop for a minute. I put this in my book, but it's very interesting. There was this woman um, in another state, and uh, someone who was part of Ananda was a friend of hers. And she was uh, one of the wealthiest women in the U.S. from an extremely wealthy family, uh, a family where the money had been there for a very long time. And the woman had been totally raised to believe that everybody in the world is after your money and that you really can't trust anybody because they all want your money. The only people you can trust is other members of the family. And this one friend from Ananda had managed to sort of, uh, to a certain extent, become her confidant through the practice of yoga and so on like that. So then this woman allowed Swami to come and visit her. I was not present on this occasion. And uh, she stayed with, he, he stayed with her, at, uh, well, I think perhaps twice. And, and she was becoming extremely interested in what we were doing. I mean, you know, she could have financed us forever. So, I mean, that was a fact that was there if she became interested. Um, but Swami knew that everybody played up to this woman because of her money. And he, he said, I, I put this in my book, he said one night when he was there at dinners, early on, I mean, maybe a second visit, he brought up um, the subject, uh, she was very strong about women's rights and whatever they called women's lib, I think it was called at that point. And it wasn't that Swami has any prejudice against gender or anything like that, but he didn't necessarily follow the trends. So he brought up the subject, a subject, he said he specifically brought up a subject he knew that she had strong feelings about, and he knew that his point of view was somewhat different than hers. And he started the discussion, and he was very sincere. He said exactly what he felt. I don't know what he said because I wasn't there. Um, he was trying to show her that he was going to be honest with her, and he wasn't going to play up to her. He was just going to speak his mind, and she could decide. He also felt it was extremely important that she find out right away that merely because she held an opinion, it didn't mean that we were going to hold the same opinion. And she was so offended, she told the friend, you know, I never want to see him again. She never did. Just like that. So everybody has a choice, you know. And he was, he really sincerely felt that we could have helped her a great deal because she would have had in us true friends but it was too much karma. She couldn't, she couldn't step outside of it. Strange. You know, you look at something like that and you think, oh, how fortunate they are. But it's an incredible prison also. So, but you don't know whether the radioactive... Thing, because you meet someone like Swami Kriyananda, certainly you meet Master. And you just, if you have any sensitivity, you realize you're just, you're just with something you've never been with before because there's no, there's no precedent for it. Swamiji said, people always assume, and this actually was part of all of our litigation, he said, everybody who acts has a personal motive. They're, they have a personal reason why they're doing what they're doing, and they're, they're looking for what they can get out of it. Everybody does, mostly. But he doesn't. He does what he feels is right to do, and he has no personal motive. So people think he must have a motive, and he's just so... And if they can't figure out what his selfish motive is, they assume that he's just so clever, he's really hidden it. <laughs> but he said it's just, it's very confusing because that's how everyone is. But if you're sensitive, you begin to realize that there's just something else happening here.
So I don't know how those people in New York felt. If they could really feel it, you pray that they did. Bernard hoped that they did. Okay, number 208. The Master told us during his last years, I used to go to saints as a boy. I wanted to learn from them. They, however, kept asking me questions. I went to them in the hope of gaining from them, but they were hoping to gain from me. You know, this is a wholly different perspective than he puts through in Autobiography of a Yogi. You know, the, the whole book of Autobiography of a Yogi, sometimes you sort of stand back and... Because he tells the story of visiting all those saints. But I guess even as a child he walked in and they could just see what his consciousness was if they were really... They called him Little Great One, Chotho Mahashaya, sometimes. But imagine... Um, just how thrilling it must be to meet a child with that much and, and what a consciousness he must have had to be both a master and a child like that's, I guess those are the stories about Krishna about how completely delightful and charming he was and all those stories about the butter and everything else <laughs> because you, you have all that freedom of childhood and all that innocence of childhood coupled with the greatness of spiritual perception. Hard to imagine, isn't it? Swami Kriyananda, who certainly was an advanced soul, he grew up in this, in this isolated little colony in Teleaj in Romania. And it, was, it wasn't very large. Um, and, I mean, a, a dozen families or something. It was much smaller. I always thought of it as bigger, but it was really like just a dozen families or so. Very um, uh, adventuresome for his parents, who were born and raised in Oklahoma. That's why when Swami writes, he just writes a paragraph or two about his father in the beginning of his autobiography. And he talks about the pioneer spirit and how much his father had the pioneer spirit. Here's the, he's a, a geological engineer from Oklahoma, and he immediately leaves the U.S. And he, he worked in Mexico, and he worked uh, in France, he worked in Romania. And he met, his, uh, he met Gertrude in uh, Paris. And she too, um, she'd gone to Paris to study the violin. You know, this is all like in the 1920s. And she was a very gifted violinist. Her, her father died when she was five and her father was French. So perhaps that was part of the connection. But nonetheless, in the 1920s, going off by yourself as a woman to study the violin. So two people from Oklahoma meet in Paris. And he's working, maybe he was working in Romania at that point, I'm not sure. But I, there's another European country that I'm trying to remember that he was also stationed in. Later, I was trying to think when he w when met Gertrude. And they, um, but they lived in this very isolated little enclave that was, a, it was right there at the oil refinery. And it was a dozen or so families. And Swami describes himself as just, he was just the leader of all the children. They all followed him and did what he did. And I sort of asked him once, just sort of like, why? <laughs> but it was just his magnetism. He said he had all the ideas. <laughs> and they all just followed him. Until, he writes this, until a, a boy came from America who essentially was worldly, who, who was, you know, keen on baseball and had a, a very American attitude in the, in the least attractive way bigger, better, kind of uh, more powerful. And when he came in, he brought a different vibration. And he magnetized the children to him. 
And after that, Swami just, the, he, he didn't have a, he didn't, he wasn't in tune with what was going on anymore. It's very interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, oh, anyway, so we're going on. Number 209. When I was a boy, I went to a man who, so I'd been told, was a great saint. I went with humility as I approach every manifestation of the divine and bowed reverently before him. He, when he saw my devotion, decided to impress me further. He declared, I am God. You don't say so, I cried, <laughs> leaping to my feet. I had a little pocket mirror with me, which I used as an aid to introspection. That's just an interesting phrase right there. A little pocket mirror that I, what did he, look at his face? It's just, it, you know, it's just sort of thrown in there. I carry this little mirror, which I use for introspection. Ra- facing the mirror toward him, I demanded, is that God? It is not the God I am seeking. Turning, I strode out of the room. Here he is. You know, he just always spoke the truth. That man was truly sincere, however. He'd made the common mistake of thinking that the scriptures in declaring, Aham Brahm Asmi, I and, and infinite Brahman are one, means that one may also say of oneself, I am God. This is an error. How can the little ego be infinite? The man, rising hastily from his seat, ran after me. Bowing before me, he said, you have awakened me from a great delusion. I want to thank you. Your master says, I accepted his apology, then said, the ocean is all of its waves. The wave, however, should never say, I am the ocean even after it has realized its own oneness with the ocean. The man understood and thanked me sincerely. He then prostrated before me in the full gaze of his students. You have wakened me, he repeated, from a great delusion. Just think what a scene that must have been. Here's this little boy, but Master, obviously Master transmitted something to it, and obviously Master was drawn there, sent there, to transmit something. You are a great soul indeed, I said to him. Otherwise, you would not have admitted your error so quickly, especially before your own students. And when shown to you by a mere boy, you have proved your true greatness. I love the way Master refers to himself as a mere boy. <laughs> I was just, this is a mere boy speaking, but you, you can imagine, you know, what kind of a radiance was coming through him and how extremely superconscious master was continuously. Well, this is the story of Jesus preaching in the temple at the age of 12. His parents take him up to Jerusalem. They all leave to go back. He simply stays at the temple. His parents panic and come rushing up to look for him. And he sort of looks at them. Why are you, you know, what are you doing here? Why are you so upset? Why are you looking for me? Don't you know I have to be about my father's business, is how he puts it. But it was like it didn't even occur to him, I'm done with you, I'm not. And shortly after he left for India, I'm not um, really your child, I've just been here with you. Was it Shankaracharya who, who wanted to renounce the world at the age of eight, five, and his mother wouldn't let him, and then he jumped into the pond and let the crocodile grab him? and said to his mother, you're going to lose your son either way. Which way do you want it to be? (laughs) Either I let the crocodile take me or I go to the Himalayas. And naturally she said, go to the Himalayas. But also, from the heart, 
of the mother. Uh, in John the Baptist, this, the, the tradition is that he left home at a very young age. Partly he went into hiding, I guess. But he also, he just lived among the wild beasts, John the Baptist. That's why when he came out to preach, he was such a wild man. This is the tradition. I don't know how valid it is, but he just grew up out in the wilderness. He just went off as a child into the wilderness. I think to myself, wouldn't it be wonderful? Wouldn't it be wonderful to be so clear, even from childhood, that it just you just recognize that there's really nothing here for me? I mean, not merely a moderate disinterest, but in just an absolute knowing. There's just nothing here. Why am I here? And then you just go off and do whatever it is that you're intended to do spiritually without ever spinning into the story. Because even those of us who are, have been shown ourselves to be quite serious spiritually, we're still so embroiled. I just would really like not to be so embroiled. I would really like to know. Yeah. Won't that be wonderful when it happens where, wherever we are in whatever lifetime we're in? Yeah, I will be great. I mean, I consider this one to be extremely fortunate. I didn't do much of anything at all, but I did more than I hope I do next time. <laughs> but just to keep that clarity from such um, a young age, it's really, really remarkable. Let's hope for the best. Number 210. Here's another one of these. When I was a schoolboy, I felt guided to write a note to the boy sitting next to me in the classroom, the note read, Master says, I felt guided to write this. I am your guru. Bad boy, he answered. <laughs> Can you see these two little boys there? Shaking his head in disapproval. That night, however, he was shown a vision in which he saw me as indeed his guru. I mean, why not? They, of course they would incarnate together and be friends. The following day he tried to find me. This time, however, I hid from him. I was being playful. I also felt, however, that he must work a little now to earn the blessing. When at last we met, we accepted each other lovingly. And that's, a, that's a sweet way he puts it, we accepted each other. Swamiji often uh, has commented that it isn't a enough to accept Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, Jesus Christ also has to accept the responsibility for saving you. <laughs> and uh, Swami has said, and it's a sensitive point, but one can't presume on that. One can't just imagine just because I've decided that I'm going to be saved, that we are saved. Um, at different times, uh, I, I've talked to Swamiji about this, about discipleship, because he's, he's made all of us extremely paranoid on occasion by talking too much about presumption in the, in, in the relationship with the Master, just because we want it to be true, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't automatically bind the Master. It doesn't automatically... Our desire for him to be bound to us doesn't automatically bind him to us. Now, when I talked to Swami about that paranoia, he's kind of pushed it aside, and he said, I'm not talking about... You know, all of you is how he would speak. You know, all of you who have really shown their sincerity. But it doesn't hurt us. It doesn't hurt us 
in the right way to um, appreciate what a gift it is back to us and that, and that it's not something we should just take for granted and just assume now that I've decided to be a disciple, he's decided to be my master. But that we need to renew that. It's a love relationship. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And like, look at all of our friendships and romantic associations, even parent-child, all of these. They can go stale. They can go stale if we don't constantly renew the energy. And that, that's what daily meditation is about. That's what Kriya is about. It's what Sunday service, it's what it's all about. But it, it's, it's very important to recognize it as a living relationship that has to be nurtured and given primary attention like everything else. Yes? Uh, if it were true that all you had to do was uh, presume and uh, then things would be as you wished, that would be horrible in the sense that it would, all it would do is inflate your ego even more. Right. And it does. But delusion is very subtle. So it's not... Uh, but, but one doesn't want to become paranoid. <laughs> but it's, it's, it, we just have to be sincere. And, and really, that's what really counts. But that's also so sweet, Master, here. I don't, Swami didn't ask him the question, but in the story, Two Penniless Boys in Brindaban, uh, when he met that um, man who took them around the city, who said he was a guru, and he initiated him there, uh, Swami asked him, Have you, did you ever see him again? And that was Master's answer, no, but inwardly he stayed in touch. Inwardly he stayed in touch. But that's also interesting. You never saw him again. But inwardly, he stayed in touch. It's, it's uh, mm, very fascinating. Okay, any other comments or questions? Number 211. When I was young, a certain student of mine wanted me to lead a revolution to free India from foreign domination. You can imagine, Master had so much power. And he was physically powerful too. And of course he was William the Conqueror and he'd been a general so many times. This man just looked at him and said he could do it. He could inspire the men and he could lead the field. That is your job, I told him. I added, however, India will be free during my lifetime by peaceful means. He was determined to follow the way of armed revolution, however, though I tried to dissuade him from it. The British caught him and he was executed. Divine Mother punished him for trying to use force. Wow, look at that. Master, I asked, this is Swami speaking, if Divine Mother didn't want it and you knew in advance it wouldn't happen anyway, why did you let him go ahead with his plans? That was his determination in this life, according to his karma, is the Master's answer. Master did try to dissuade him. I mean, Swami says that, that the Master did his best to tell him he shouldn't do it, but he couldn't stop him. And he didn't tell him, well, you're going to die in this attempt. Because as we go on, to the soul, as Master often told us, Swami writes, death means nothing. It's so hard to realize, isn't it? People in their true self see their exits and their entrances, to quote Shakespeare, as fleeting appearances merely on the stage of earthly existence. 
Such is life's endless drama. Entrances and exits. So Master looked at the man and saw that it was something that he really needed to go through. But, but, but Swami, Master also indicates that Divine Mother punished him for trying to use force. So whatever was in him, he was ready to learn something else. And that's why he just was caught and executed. Because Master himself led armed revolution, so to speak, many times. He led soldiers into battle. It wasn't like there was never a moment when Master felt that you shouldn't pick up arms and fight. It's just that that wasn't the moment. And that wasn't the way to do it. So the man got to move forward and had his life ended. I, during, the, uh, during the time, I guess it was the Vietnam War in the 70s and so on, when there was a huge movement against war, and it was all, a lot of my generation and a lot of young people were very adamant against this. And I kept thinking that these must have been the same people who all died in World War II, who were drafted as young men and just had their lives cut off in their 20s. And they've gotten back again and they are not going to have it happen again. And you can just sort of see how that, you know, that force just keeps pushing keeps pushing, and because some of them were so, you know, I'll burn my draft card, I'll go to Canada, just absolutely not. I've been there and I'm not going to go through that again. So this young man, who knows, he was sure that violent revolution was the way to do it. He picked up arms and bingo, immediately his life is over. But if you learn, where's the loss? I mean, what's the, what's the point of having a long life when you learn nothing? If such a, a quick entrance and exit and such a, a coercive one, being like that, being executed must be an extremely interesting experience, you know, because you know you're imprisoned, you know you're, you're condemned, the date is given, you walk out and you know a minute from now I'll be in the astral world. It's, it must be an um, amazing psychic, psychological um, experience. I can't imagine. Well, I can imagine. Probably been through it a lot of times. My, my, my. Let's take a little break. Number 212. There was a woman disciple... Oh, I love this story. It's such a weird story. There was a woman disciple of Swami Shankaracharya, as the Master once told me, um, perhaps as a warning, for during that time I suffered intensely from self-doubt. This is Swami writing. Who, dub- who doubted all the time, Master said, She kept expressing her doubts and fears to her guru and would ask him, but what if this happens or what if I do that? One day, she said to him, but what if I die? Calmly, her guru looked at her and said, very well then, die. (laughs) In that instant, she fell over dead. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Just see how completely different perspective. Oh, you're so worried about dying? Okay, die. Just like that. I talked about that one at Sunday service once. I'll go back there in a minute. Calmly, okay, then my first thought on hearing this story from the Master was, what a drastic lesson. It didn't even have the usual miraculous (laughs) follow-up. Like the story about Babaji, you know, where he jumps over the cliff. The usual miraculous follow-up. A revival afterward, for example, or the discovery that she wasn't dead after all. On further reflection, I realized 
that life teaches many lessons, some of them drastic. To grow spiritually is not easy. To give birth is not easy. To be born is not easy. On the soul's long journey through endless seeming incarnations, the death of one body is no more appalling than birth into another. <laughs> In terms of the soul's long journey, death and rebirth, I just like, what's the difference? And into a completely new environment. You know, you, you have in Master's autobiography, he talks about lying there in the crib and uh, prayerful surges rose within him and he was frustrated by his inability to articulate all that was flowing through his consciousness. And then he says, gradually from the cacophony of sound, I figured out that they were all speaking Bengali. And I began, you know, the multitude of languages going through in my head, I began to figure out that Bengali was what was happening. Just what Swami says, being birthed into another completely new environment. We don't, we don't really think about that. The little baby comes. I'm going to pause for a minute here. The little baby comes in. Everybody's so happy to greet the baby. Oh, my little Johnny, my little Francisco, my little whoever it is. I sometimes, from a kid's point of view, the, you know, parents are so big and they're so on their children. One of my friends who has very vivid memories of being really small remembers sitting in her little high chair and her father, she, she, the way she said it, her father's head was so big and he would put his head right here and he was a, just a big outgoing man and he just would sort of talk to her and relate to her. She just remembers sitting there just, he was making so much noise and he was just so huge and so in her face all the time because she was having regular life experiences. And just imagine how confusing it is for them. Like, who are these people? And even more when it begins to occur to you, who am I? Like, who am I really? How did I get here? Because we're, we're just transitioned in whatever lives we've lived before, wherever we were in the astral world. I don't know how the method works. But there is just a certain amount of, here you are in a totally new environment. And you have to get used to all these people. And you have to get used to what's expected of you and what the food tastes like. And, and you know, every so often you have these stories of children who, whose memories stick with them. And they'll tell about, and, and I was reading one, it happened in India somewhere. She just kept saying, you're not my real parents. You know, my real parents are over in this other place and you know, they'll, they'll wonder about me. Who are you? Why am I with you? I mean, some people feel that way their whole lives. Who are you? Why am I with you? <laughs> Even when you grow up and you kind of get the script, it's still like, who are you? Why am I with you? Some parents feel that way about their kids, but it's a, it's a more difficult situation. Swamiji's wonderfully, he's so, un, he's so un, uh, sentimental. He talks about, in his own autobiography, he says, I, I, I describe these family influences I believe I came into this world fully myself. So I'm describing my, my family's history, which he does, he goes sort of a, quickly a couple of generations, who they were and what they were doing. Um, not, because, not because I feel like it made me who he was, that's what how Swami said, not because it made me who I am. I came into this world fully myself. He said, but I'm wanting to, you to understand the forces with which I chose to associate. 
You know, this was the context in which these were the kinds of people and the kind of family that I chose to associate with. I mean, that's such a different way to think about it. Now, of course, he, his was a free birth. I mean, I don't know, he wasn't an avatar, but his was a very free birth. Some of us don't have that much choice about the forces with which we choose to associate because the magnetism of our karma is so strong, we're just sucked right down into that tube and there's very little free choice in it. He was describing a, quite a different life. But the confusion of it still is, is uh, really something. And you see, all, there's so many multiple births now. People who are, you know, you, because of all the news media, the family adopts triplets and then conceives, oh, the first week the triplets are home, they conceived and it was twins. So like by the end of one year, they had five babies under the age of one. It's just like, that's a crowd looking all at each other. They're not just uh, one woman who ended up with four children said that uh, she conceived the first one and she said they all were lined up behind the first child and she didn't know that. (laughs) That they'd made a pact with each other that if any one of them got started, they would all come. (laughs) But even that wasn't her, her intention. But it was theirs. That's how it was described to her. And it was sort of like that. When she took the first one, all the brothers had to come along with him. You just don't know. These are the forces you choose to associate with. So he says, That woman in her soul, however, would, now, would not easily have forgotten the lesson her guru had given her. <laughs> I don't think so. Evidently, you can just see her in the next lifetime. Every time she starts to complain, no. <laughs> you know, she would have a really strong aversion to articulating any fears or anything like that. And if anybody said anything like that, I'm sure she'd become very nervous because she would not. That woman in her soul, however, would not easily have forgotten the lesson her guru had given her. Now think about that. When these really tough things happen to us, we make, we make a move and it's not... I used to have this dream. I haven't had it really in a long time, but I used to have it periodically for many years. And in the dream, I would do something really um, against Dharma. Just I'd follow some impulse, some selfish impulse, and do something really against Dharma, the kind of thing that just really wrecks your life. And I would sort of do, in the dream, I would, it would happen. It wouldn't even be so much that, that the it would happen, but it would have happened. And then there I was, like a minute afterwards, realizing that I'd made such a mess and that, you know, so many bad things were going to happen. And then in the dream, I would just be like this. And then I'd wake up. Oh, I'd be so happy, so relieved. And I mean, I'm certain that was just exactly what he's saying. The soul will not quickly forget. But in my subconscious because the desires that would lead me to follow a selfish impulse and not have this restraint not to do it, I believe that that's not purged. But simultaneously is a very deep recollection of this is not a good idea. And I just would, I lived through, I lived through many times the consequences of that behavior, which actually in a sense is very good. You know, because it was, it kept, it would repeat in my subconscious mind. It hasn't for quite a long time now. And then I would just be, thank God I really didn't just make such a hash of it. 
So there's that poor girl you can remember. Uh, anyway, evidently it was not one he could have, <laughs> evidently it was not a lesson he could have administered more gently. <laughs> Surely she learned, at least, that whatever a person invites to himself by expecting it, he must eventually receive. Desire is one way that man extends that invitation. Fear and doubt are two others. So it's not merely what you want, it's what you don't want that also has magnetism, that, that which you fear. In fact, when I asked Swami the question once about karma, he says, if, you, if you're still afraid of something, he said, you have karma there. I, and that's really, when he, when he said that to me, which was quite a long time ago, if you're still afraid of it, you still have some karma there. And I think about, you know, the things I'm really afraid of, above all physical things. Just like the thought of being imprisoned or tortured. I just, I can't, uh, I really don't like to be in rooms with the curtains closed or the blinds closed, in the daytime especially. I mean, at night it's different because you can't see out, but in the daytime, whenever I go into anybody's house where they have the curtains drawn, I just tend to open them and I, I really think I lived, I was under, uh, imprisoned underground. And I also have this, this thing, as long as I can, I, and I can look for a really long time, just like, you know, out, of, out a very small window, just whatever piece of sky I can see. And sometimes when I'm doing that, there's something very um, old about that, about just having one little tiny view out into the world. I, I presume, given the personality I have, that I offended people and started, you know, revolutions and just got in trouble. So the idea that I was imprisoned either for acts of conscience or acts of evil, I don't know which, but certainly for acts of conscience, I'm sure. But it, it all, it, it, you know, it's all in there with you. Let me, what was I starting to say about that? Oh, fear and doubt. So anything that one still fears... Um, uh, Swami would tell us all those stories about the physical things he would do, especially with the dentist. And just walk in and just um, open himself literally to the infliction of that kind of pain without trying to protect himself or escape from it. And it, it I mean, it frightened me just to hear him talk about it. Every time he'd talk about it, I just want to close my ears. But if we're afraid of anything, it means we have karma there. It's by no means an obsessive fear. But also think about, what if I wasn't afraid of it? You know, what if I knew? When I talked on Sunday about being thrown to the lions. I talked quite a lot about being thrown to the lions, I realized afterwards. And I forgot a very important part of being thrown to the lions, which Master said, which is, if you're martyred with great faith, you don't suffer. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, he said, if, if there's no reason for you to suffer if... And, and how would that be? You would be protected by the way you feel? Your soul would simply exit your body sooner? Who knows? But he said that this, we, we look at it like this, you know, they go through this great pain, but why would they? They've, they've, by being courageous enough to step into it, that's what you have to do once they've accepted it. Somebody else told me another story about the martyrs just sort of saying the Christian martyrs being thrown to the lions, you know, in moments we'll be in paradise. And so their their feeling about it was that they were going they were going to meet the bridegroom. Imagine just having such a, a fluid relationship 
with your physical self. And that's what that, that's what that uh, Sankracharya was trying to get that woman to feel. Like, what, what, is, what does it matter? You wear this body for a little while, then you take it off. Ah, for that freedom, that's where we're going. Be careful always, the Master said, to hold positive ex- expectations, for you will attract to yourself anything you project into the universe. A true guru like Swami Shankaracharya always acts from the desire to help his disciples. Never is it his wish merely to get them out of his hair. <laughs> I mean, it's a very effective way to get rid of a, a, a nuisance in the ashram, but really, <laughs> he wouldn't really have many disciples left. Um, thus, Shankaracharya's drastic seeming treatment of his disciple was in fact a demonstration of divine love and friendship. When I was talking about that particular story in a sermon one Sunday, I just had that thought that Master promised us if we're faithful to the end, when we die, they'll be there to to greet us. So when this woman died, I mean, he, he must have stayed with her. That's the scene that I really began to enjoy, which is her being out of her body and his spirit being there with her. And I, I, I love to think that they laughed. My favorite part of that is he just looks at her and she looks at him and they burst out laughing. Look what happened. That would be ideal. That would be, as Swami used to call it, breaking in the right way. He talked about how Master would sometimes push them, you know, past the limit of their ability to take it with equanimity to see which way they would break. And he, he talked about that time when he and Norman were having to smooth the sand with the two-by-fours, and Master just kept pushing them and pushing them, and finally Norman just started laughing. You know, this is, this is so, what's, whatever's going on. But sometimes you get angry, because they tell Bernard, by contrast, became angry when they had to stay up all night and do the cement to do the swimming pool and so on. Bernard just became angry about it. Which way are you going to break? It's a, very, it's a very important concept. So this woman, having faced this really severe test, which way will she break? Will she break into... And because I don't, it is a funny story, if you can stand back from it a little bit. And I hope she had the capacity to see the humor in it. Because it... I, you know, the masters, they laugh a great deal. They just really laugh a lot. Uh, I, I was mentioning just in passing at Sunday service the way Swami used to always correct my use of I and me. He, he corrected me for decades and I never could learn it. I never learned, I never learned ever the rules of grammar or anything like that. My parents spoke proper English to me. I read a lot of books. So I sort of just knew what, how you were supposed to say it. And I never could, for some reason, I'm sure my parents had that one right, but I just never learned it, no matter how many times he explained it to me. I could never get it. Even to this moment, I can't get it. So when he, when I just was telling some, this, this woman had him on an interview, and she thought it would be interesting to have someone who knew him well and had studied with him also on the interview. It was a big show in Los Angeles. I don't know how I got into it, but anyway, there I was. 
So we're all just doing this thing. And I'm in the middle of some, she'd asked me some question. I'm right in the middle of a story. And I said, I or me correctly. And Swami's voice just comes right across. <laughs> you know, and just, he completely interrupted me. Just totally stopped. It's a big live program. Just totally stopped the program to fix my grammar like that. <laughs> and it was just so delightful. I just, you know, and it was such a, uh, and, and we both knew how funny it was. And the poor host just, I just said, he's been correcting me on that point for the last 40 years. But uh, there's that uh, friendship. That's why I like to think that as soon as she was dead, she thought, saw the humor of the whole thing, and the two of them just had a good laugh, and now they just went on to the next step. Because that would be the ideal way to take it. That's why we should always take it when God does something really unexpected, but we don't always find it funny right away. Sometimes we decide that we're going to suffer for reasons that I can't really parse apart, but that's what it is. Uh, any comments or thoughts? Number 213. I was supposed, the Master told us, according to my horoscope, to marry three times, being twice a widower. It is interesting to note that my father tried three times to get me married. On two of those occasions, I simply refused. The third time, he tried to spring the event on me unexpectedly so that I wouldn't be able to back out. And Americans don't understand this at all. When we used to travel to India, we had a young unmarried man at that time who was our um, tour guide. And Sooner or later, every person on the bus would talk to him about arranged marriage. People were just completely... And he had a great answer. I loved his answer. He said, whether my parents... God knows who my wife is. He said, whether my parents find her and bring her to me or whether I meet her on the street. He said, what's the difference? It was actually sort of a sweet way to put it. It's destiny. And who cares who acts on it? We're so egoic about our... Um, involvement, as it happened actually, and he didn't tell us this. He, he'd already met his wife and he was just waiting for his parents to get used to it. <laughs> I didn't know that at the time. I found that out much later. <laughs> All right. Um, I met the girl as a woman. She truly was beautiful for an instant. I love this. For an instant, satanic delusion tugged at my mind. <laughs> okay. I heard the voice saying inwardly, isn't she beautiful? <laughs> Go ahead, why not marry her? Never, I replied with great force. I looked at the girl through the spiritual eye, oh, this master's so terrible, and saw beneath the skin her muscles and internal organs, all red with blood. Her bones looked like any skeleton. No one under their skin is beautiful. <laughs> He's so unsentimental. Okay. People were very disappointed when I refused to go along with the plan. I told them, I know you feel let down because you were looking forward to the feast. Well, I won't disappoint you. I asked Prabhash Ghosh, a dear cousin of mine, if he would marry her. He was delighted to get such a beautiful bride. <laughs> and so the wedding came off. And then Master tells the rest of the story. In 1935, when I returned to India, I visited Prabhasha's home. His wife had become a terrible nag. The beautiful young woman becomes a terrible nag. 
Prabash would go tiptoeing around the home like a mouse, scarcely daring to open his mouth. Seeing that situation, I took the wife aside and said to her, I have some right to speak to you on these matters, for you were intended to be mine. I just want to tell you, if you had treated me as I used to see you treating him, one week, that's all I would have given the marriage. <laughs> then I'd have been off to the Himalayas. From then on, she was softer in her behavior to my cousin. There's a lot of teaching in that, isn't there? The next one, which we'll deal next week, talks about why, why about Master's horoscope and so on. But, uh, you know, Master speaking again. See, these are all the whole, there's all these stories this time about how sternly Master spoke to people. When we uh, were making up that book of uh, letters of Swami Kriyananda, Divine Friendship, when, and I drew it, put that book together. She worked on it beautifully for years. But when it was being assembled into sections, she had the section, and it's really, you know, very forceful letters and she called the section strong medicine because <laughs> that's really what it was it, but it was really telling things to people that they really needed to hear but without any sugar coating and it's a compliment really when the master speaks to you like that because he wouldn't do it if he didn't think you could take it there's that story in the path about the, what, the disciple that master was babying I call you my baby and he said, no, I don't mind if you call me my ba your baby because I'm babying him. He just doesn't, he won't let me really tell him anything. So it, it's, it's not a, a master, the master always being nice is not necessarily a compliment. The master being stern uh, can often be a very complimentary thing. But master's just, in another place, um, Master said that one of the reasons that Jesus left for India is that his parents were planning a marriage for him. I mean, it's just, he, Master just throws this in. His parents were planning to marry him and arrange a marriage, and he didn't want a, a marriage, so he left. He just walked away, went off to India because he knew what he was about, which is, is also, um, there's such a leela going on. You really just don't know how to sort the whole thing out at all. And, and this is the Leela of Master's life, too. Three times his father tried to marry him. His father's a disciple of Lahiri Mahashaya. The baby has been taken to the guru when he was small. And the guru says, your son will be a spiritual engine and he will draw many souls to God. Master himself says, I am not going to marry. And three times his father tries to arrange a, a wedding for him, even to the point like this one where the feast was already planned. So what is... What is the delusion that sucks everybody into this world? And this um, inability to hear each other or to hear the real um, whisper of what we're supposed to be doing. It, it, it's very... Uh, Maya is not to be messed around with. And, and the conflict that we... The battle of Kurukshetra within us too... We have to be very, very gentle with ourselves and very understanding that the difference between just saying that this is what I know is true and the actual consistent ability every day, every moment to, to master all those contrary impulses is very different. We need to be very supportive of ourselves and very supportive of each other. I heard Swami Kriyananda talking to our whole community back in 1997 
when we were going through all those, that litigation and there were so many scurrilous things being said about him. And he, he just said, I've always treated myself the way I've always treated you, which is we all do our best. And everybody, everybody tries. He said, nobody is perfect and everybody tries. And merely when you set out to do something, I was thinking about this today, when you set out to do something that's very challenging, by definition, it's going to take more than one effort. You know, if, if, it's, if it's challenging enough to be really magnificent and worth doing, you're going to strive and not succeed more than one time. And so what do you do when you don't succeed? Do you decide that you won't persevere? I mean, this is what it is when we judge ourselves and we judge others. We've set ourselves a very um, magnificent goal. And so inevitably, from time to time, we, we will disappoint ourselves. Swami's phrase, which was really actually quite a lovely one, a slip is not a fall, is how he put it. And you, you, you're climbing the mountain and you can often slip, but that doesn't mean you, you fall away from what you're doing. It just means that you've slipped and now you have to go forward. But if it's worth doing, you're definitely going to have to grow in order to accomplish it. And therefore, along the way, you will have your failures. But when the failures come, they're, oh, they're so painful. But it's, it's such a profound misunderstanding to take them that way. It's, it's, a, it's a battle I myself fight a lot. But I know it's true. It's just a profound misunderstanding to take it so to heart. It's just not what Master intends at all. It's like, yeah, sure. Of course, I, of course this is a big challenge to perfect myself. Of course it's going to just not look pretty a lot of the time. What, what do I expect? If I, uh, if I were better, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> all right. Any comments or questions before we stop? So, we started at 2.05, and we ended at 2.13. And I'll take a pen from someone if I may, and I'll write that.